hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadbeck. I hope you get something out of it, but as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about brains. Well, it's way, Lord, way. It's what she said to me, it's why I'm gone. To sin city that's right, I'm on the next flight. All right, so uh, today we'll probably finish up this stuff on drugs and hormones. Uh, if you want to know more about it, drugs, take pharmacology next year, which I think is on next year, and I teach it. Which may, of course, drive you away from teaching it in that class. It's also cross-listed as biology and psychology, 3506. So this is where I left the last last slide, and this is the graph that makes it pretty clear that E2 binding efficiency is what makes an antipsychotic drug work well for paramedicine's training. Right. And remember, schizophrenia is. I talked about how you've got you know delusions of grandeur, for example, hallucinations. Um, it's not just you know being eccentric or something. Some people have that belief. Uh, it's truly disturbing behavior. It's, uh, it's, and it's bad for them and it's bad for other people. Like, it's not like nobody looks at somebody who actually has paranoid schizophrenia and says, oh well, that's just how that guy is. It's an extremely unpleasant thing to see and to have. Um, when people are convinced that there's a giant conspiracy to control their thoughts, it's kind of hard to reason with. It is in fact impossible to reason with somebody. You cannot do talking therapy on paranoid schizophrenia. Therapy is important with the drugs. So one of the things that people who are having psychotic reactions, one of the things that happens is that they're not reality testing. So they're not reality testing. What that means is they actually aren't experiencing the same reality the rest of us are. They're hearing things that aren't there. They're hearing voices. And not, you know, like the regular internal monologue we all have. I mean, like, they're hearing God telling them to kill people. Typically not kill people. Typically, people who are not violent. I experienced this where a guy in a lab that I worked in uh, when I was a postdoc, uh, developed <coughs> schizophrenia, and it's really unpleasant to watch. It's not, it's very weird. And as much as I knew the whole time that I was in no danger, I felt threatened, even though there was no threat. Because it's so, it's such bizarre <coughs> behavior. This person was telling me I was uh, involved in a conspiracy to break his girlfriend up with him, and it turned out he didn't have a girlfriend. The woman he thought was this, who called his girlfriend, was a young woman who worked in another lab. That's all she was. She had no connection with this guy at all. It's extremely unpleasant. 
And it was funny because, well, not funny, not, not ha-ha funny. Once this happened and this guy had this break, we all realized, you know, I think he, yeah, oh yeah, we're all psychologists. Yes, we all do stuff on, you know, memory and birds, but we know enough that we should have caught on to this. So it was quite a fascinating thing. Um, so the key brain regions affected by these drugs are, uh, <laughs> that's actually literally the name for the reward system, the mesolimbic dopamine system. That's that nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area, medial forebrain bundle. It's called the mesolimbic dopamine system. Mesolimbic, meso, middle of, limbic, limbic system. And it runs on dopamine. There's two kinds of antipsychotic drugs broadly. One kind is called the, the typical antipsychotic drugs. And the other ones are called the atypical antipsychotic drugs. Um, the nigrostriatal system is also where you have these D2 receptors. The thing is, the, the, that part of your brain is involved in movement, voluntary movement. And a lack of those receptors leads to Parkinson's disease. So one of the problems here then is if people get the wrong dose of a what's called typical antipsychotic drug, they can develop Parkinson's-like symptoms. So typically when people are first put under a psychiatrist's care for schizophrenia, they're given a dose of a typical antipsychotic drug and they're given a small dose and it's worked up to see what the right dose. Because you don't want somebody developing Parkinson's. It's not actually Parkinson's, it just looks like it. Right? Sometimes they'll give out atypical antipsychotic drugs. Atypicals are a little, they have fewer of those side effects that are like Uh, Parkinson's, a few of those side, side effects. And um, they also work on some of the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. Not that it's just the positive. It's the positive ones are worked on by both typicals and atypicals. And drugs that block cholinergic receptors, this is acetylcholine receptors, can help control Parkinson's system, uh, symptoms and so do antipsychotic, uh, uh, like the atypical or the second generation antipsychotic drugs, also block uh, acetylcholine receptors. So it seems like that's the mechanism that gives the Parkinson's-like symptoms. So it's something to be careful with. Uh, these are very unpleasant drugs. If, if, if it's blocking the dopamine system, the mesolimbic dopamine system, it takes away fun. <laughs> so suddenly food tastes bland. People's sex drives go away. They don't want to get out of bed. There's nothing to do that would be enjoyable. You can see how it's very hard to get people to stay on these drugs because it takes away things that are fun. It's very difficult to stay on these drugs. So a lot of times, not, not saying all the therapy, the talk therapy is about staying on your drugs, but there's a chunk of it that literally is about remember to take your pills. Right? And as I mentioned the other day, there are people who with schizophrenia who, you know, do six days on, one day off, just so they can feel a bit sort of 
I don't want to say alive, but you know what I mean. Less dull, less muted. Less dull, less, less muted. Muted is good as well, yeah. Um, uh, if you see the movie uh, Beautiful Mind, main character in story course is a paranoid schizophrenic. Yes, that's a spoiler for a movie from 1996. So it's not a spoiler anymore. It's just history. It happened. Spoilers. It's a movie that was out before most of you were born. It's not a freaking spoiler. Um, and in that movie, he actually, sometimes you'll notice that when he finds out that he's got schizophrenia, which you should be able to figure out very early on in the movie. I, was, I have this horrible habit when I'm watching movies that I figure out what's going to happen. And I used to just say to my wife, you know what's going to happen? And I would ruin movies for it. So now what I do is I just get a piece of paper, write down what I think, and just fold it and put it away. <laughs> so with that one, I, I, I took a piece of paper, wrote down parents, because the free end, just closed it, put it on the coffee table. She said, what's that sitting there? Work stuff. <clears throat> and then... So then, of course, when it's revealed, you can open that up. And she said, you knew? Oh, yeah, well, college. Uh, he reveals in that movie, and of course, uh, it's actually true, that there, he's one of those people that takes a day off of his medication now and then. The problem with taking a day off from your medication is if some of the symptoms come back, they may be symptoms like, oh, I don't know, the delusions and the hallucinations and maybe then you don't want to take your medication. So it's, it's kind of dangerous to do that and people would advise you not to. All right, questions about antipsychotics? Each of these single drugs are things that we spent a week on in neuropharmacology. So I'm just hitting the highlights, just hitting the highlights. So how do these drugs work, antidepressants? Well, the first thing about antidepressants you have to realize is that they fight depression. Duh. The name. Now, remember what depression is. Depression isn't just feeling sad. No, that's part of it. It's feeling useless, and it's feeling not getting out of bed because you're a useless, worthless person. And yes, we all have those moments. But most of us don't have them all the time. And most of us, if we say something like that, then, then sort of laugh to ourselves, so oh, don't be such an idiot. You know. People who are actually depressed believe those things. They aren't really reality testing either. Right? So it's not classified as a psychotic disorder. Uh, it's interesting that for the most part, when sometimes we hear people say that antidepressants cause Suicide, and in fact, it's the case that sometimes on, on, on antidepressants, people are more likely to commit suicide than when they're not on antidepressants. But that's because that's probably a, an antidepressant effect. People are getting get just enough confidence that they can kill themselves if they kill themselves. I mean, I shouldn't laugh. At that. I wasn't laughing. I was being very sad. You couldn't tell. I'm wearing a mask. So that's, I mean, that's kind of disturbing, but people don't tend to, they, the, the concern here is not necessarily then about when people are at the very bottom, the sort of suicide watch thing happens when you start to treat them. And that is also involves talking as well. So how do these drugs work? Well, the names of a couple of them can tell you how they work. Let's get that stylus here I do. So 
monoamine oxidase inhibitors, it's obvious how they work if you understand what, what all those words mean. So I'm going to go through it here. So let's start with these guys. Monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Monoamines are things like epinephrine, norepinephrine, serotonin. Right? It's a class of neurotransmitters. So there are these monoamine neurotransmitters, and they're floating around. So we've got one of those. There's some more monoamines. These are either monoamines or master's degrees. Floating around. Okay. So monoamines are floating around in a synapse somewhere. Now, some of them will bind to a binding site. So let's put a neuron here, like that, and there's going to be some, there's some binding sites there. So for most of us, this is fine. We have to these, we have to bind two of these have to bind to mono to to, to these uh, you know, sites here, right there and there. These other two could get taken back up at the original neuron, or you know what they could do? They might just get broken down by an enzyme called mono. Amine oxidase. So monoamine oxidase comes along, it binds with this, breaks it down. And there's another monoamine oxidase molecule that binds with that, breaks it down. So now these two are gone. No harm, no foul, because none of us have not enough monoamines. What if. Is there not an eraser? There is not. Okay, well, this will be interesting. So what if it turns out instead of having, let's say you don't have those. You're not making enough monoamines. So what are these two molecules of monoamine oxidase going to do now? They're going to they're gonna now go after these two molecules. You need those. Because they're going to bind to that next one, that, that next neuron. Well, what if we had a drug called monoamine oxidase inhibitors that come along and destroy the monoamine? <laughs> I'm going to have to do all kinds of stuff to get rid of that. And that one too. Oh, look, now we have normal levels of monoamines. What a very useful diet. I'm going to take a picture of that. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of this horrible, horrible diagram I've drawn. And we'll share it with the world. Okay. You see that works, despite my, my scribbling? Right? Okay. Yeah, please. Uh, could you please repeat after what happens when there's only two monoamines? Okay, so there's only these two molecules. And you have monoamine oxidase floating around, which I've now read it out here. The problem is they're going to break down these monoamines. And now they're gone. And now this next neuron isn't going to fire because these aren't going to bind to them. But if we have a thing called monoamine oxidase inhibitor, oh, here it is here. It kills the monoamine oxidase. And now you have more monoamines. Does that make sense? Excellent. Whenever, whenever I ask if something makes sense and someone says yes, it makes me realize I actually can do my job. So it makes me feel good. Thank you. We'll brush it over me. So that's how these drugs work. Now, 
what else could we be doing with these monoamines? Well, what, what else can happen with drugs, with, with neurotransmitters? They can get taken back up into the original neuron. So again, the example I had before, we had four monoamine molecules, and we had two receptor sites, and everybody was happy, everybody being a little bit neurons. <laughs> because you could easily operate those two binding sites with the two molecule, two monoamine molecules. The extra ones might get taken back up into the original neuron. They would be, they'd be reuptake, right? The problem is, again, what if you're in the case where you don't make enough monoamines? Well, what we do with tricyclic antidepressants, TCA stands for tricyclic antidepressant. What these do is they block reuptake of monoamines. So they, instead of going back up into the original neuron, they sit in the synapse. Now, by doing that, that makes more, more monoamines available in the brain. It's doing the same thing as this, it's just doing it in a different way. Now, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that name is so clear as to what it, it's selective, that means only, serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It stops the reuptake of serotonin, which is a monoamine. This is, this, these drugs work under the premise <coughs> that it's not monoamines, it's not the whole class of monoamines, it's really just serotonin that's the issue. So they're doing the same thing as tricyclics, they're just targeting only serotonin. Only serotonin. Okay, questions about that? These are probably drugs you've heard of. Yes, please. No, but like, you know what, like, there's a whole class of them, like lorazepam, clonazepam. Yeah. Those aren't antidepressants? Uh, They're more anti anxiety. Yes. Uh, no, those, lorazepam is a. Clonazepam. Like, the whole family of them, right? Yeah, those are uh, barbiturates. I'm pretty sure those are barbiturates, but I'm going to look it up because I don't want to give you incorrect information. Let's just double check. Be sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, benzodiazepines. That's what I said, right? Yeah, they're benzodiazepines. They're like, um, yeah, like you said, anti-anxiety. So they're like, they're like Valium. They're like Flexitine. Or um, this is Flexitine. They're like, um, like Valium. Like diazepine. Yep. Anything ending in PAM tends to be a benzodiazepine. Anything ending in all, O-L, except for alcohol, tends to be a barbiturate. It isn't always the case. So the problem is the generic name sometimes is a little bit different than you might expect. Trade names sometimes use, uh, they're, they're for marketing. Prozac doesn't mean anything. It was a bunch of people got together in a, in a room and did a focus group and said, what a cool name, but it's Fluexity. Um, 
I don't know, heroin is a trade name, and Bear came up with it because it was like a hero medication. It, 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 that's why it has a capital H. It actually is an amazing painkiller, and it is used in end-of-life care now in a lot of different jurisdictions. But it really is. Like it's, 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 it's just really good morphine, really effective morphine. So the thing about antidepressants is that these effects are immediate. The effects on the nervous system, blocking monoamine oxidase or blocking the reuptake of monoamines or just blocking the uptake of, of serotonin. So, and that's also like that with antipsychotics. So if I give you clozapine, for example, that's an antipsychotic, it'll mess with your dopamine, your D, it'll bind to your D2 receptors before won't fire happens right away. So the effects of the nervous system are immediate. The cool thing about antipsychotics is, and then the voices go away. So you take the drug and it works. You take antipsychotics or certain antidepressants and it might take three weeks, might take a month. Oh, well, then it obviously isn't just serotonin or isn't just monoamines. They seem to play a role but depression isn't just a matter of you don't have enough serotonin. No matter what people tell you, <laughs> it's not what it is. One of my favorite lines in The Sopranos is when Tony looks at Christopher and he says, you know, you're a serotonin problem. <laughs> the Sopranos is so good. See, if you've only ever watched it once, watch it again, but realize it's a satire of the American dream, not unlike Grand Theft Auto, and it's actually really funny. It's extremely violent, but it's really funny. But you have to look at it in that. It's, it's, not, it's kind of a sophisticated way to watch the show, so I'm saying that you don't watch it with your nine-year-old brother. And laugh, because your nine-year-old brother will think you're laughing at people getting killed, rather than the meta thing of the American dream. So, assuming you have a nine-year-old brother. Anyway, it's not just serotonin. It can't be. So it makes you sort of go, huh. Well, there's a lot of stuff out there now, sort of newer things that are suggesting that it's not serotonin, but it's got something to do with the serotonin system. There is a growth factor. Whoa, <laughs> we'll use a new, let's see. Oh, look at that. That's working a lot better than I thought it would. Not as well as it should. I should be able to even think. There, yay. This was all to write down four letters. I don't know, I did all that to write down this. Brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Now you know how to spell the word brain. I freaking hope by now. Derived, sure, factor. So the only one is the, the only difficult one is this. Whoops. So brain derived neurotrophic factor. The N stands for neurotrophic. Now, There are data now that suggest that depressed people or 
in animal models, say rats, that show depressed-like symptoms. Rats can't be depressed. Rats can't have autism. Rats aren't schizophrenic. They're freaking rats. Okay, let me get that out of the way. However, we can look at behavior they exhibit that reminds us of the behavior they need in various disorders and say, well, that fits, let's see. And it looks like if you look, first of all, at depressed people, but also if you look at, say, rats who are, we can have them exhibit behavior like uh, not getting up as much, not being as active, all these kind of things. And they have lower levels of this brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Basically what happens with, with, with what BDNF does is it allows, it keeps neurons alive. Most of these neurotrophic factors, what they end up doing is they keep neurons alive. And if the brain, if, 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 if the uh, receiving neuron, this is usually, it goes from a neuron back to an originating neuron, doesn't give out BDNF, the other synapse does. They could just, just, okay. Well, we should just be able to see if we can increase BDNF. Well, you can't just inject people with brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It just doesn't work. Won't fit through the blood-brain group. However, when you give people SSRIs or monoamine oxidase inhibitors or tricyclic antidepressants, after three weeks or a month, the brain starts to produce more BDNF. So while it is making more serotonin available, or more generally more monoamines available, that's actually not, probably not the antidepressant part of antidepressants. The antidepressant part is actually making BDNF levels higher. There's nothing wrong with this. It really works, okay. But it's unlike the antipsychotics that work on the dopamine system. These work on things like serotonin or just generally monoamines, and they do work, but it takes a long time because the brain has to adjust the amount of brain-derived neurotrophic factor it makes and it is made to adjust by there being more neurotransmitter in the, in the synapse. By the way, that's a guess. These drugs are amazing because they do work. And I know there's people who take uh, antidepressants. I'm sure it's somebody in the class because there's enough people in here. And once you get the right dose and the right drug, it's like a, a life-changing thing but it might take a month. And you still need there. Yep. Yeah, but because it takes a month, a lot of people will stop taking it. Yeah. It's, it's not making it. It's not making it. doesn't do difference. anything. It doesn't do anything. Yes. Right. And then once you do get that certain level of BDNF, yeah. if they stop cold turkey, that's when they kind of have a lot of problems. Yeah. I mean, like, hey. when you're taking a drug to control a, a disease, yeah. disorder, whatever you want to call it, you should probably listen to your physician rather than going, well, and I feel fine now. Or, that's oh, not working. How about this? Hey, doc, am I supposed to keep taking these? That's a lot better. Because yeah. <laughs> they actually know what they're doing. You're right, though. People do that. Yeah. It's just like people do that with uh, even simpler things, like people don't finish courses of antibiotics. Oh, yeah. 
you know, well, my, my ear infection's gone. I'm going to stop taking. No, please keep taking them so we don't develop more super bugs and I don't die. Yeah. It's all really it's how it affects me. That's all I care about. And you know, I don't want depressed people, and I don't want people with bad ear infections either. Yep. How often do you think doctors are too quick to prescribe their patients? That's a, that's a question. I don't really know how much do I think. Uh, I think you can have a real problem with people who have no training in psychiatry diagnosing people with things that may not be what they should think. How's that? Fair. And how many doctors actually, how many doctors do you think actually mention that the effect might not happen? Like oh, you're, you should be told that right away when you, as soon as you talk to a okay. psychiatrist. Yeah. Because you should always be told what happens with the drug. Right. So yeah, you should be told right away. If you're not being told right away what happens with the drug, your your physician's not doing their whole job. Yeah. I'm sure that happens. I, I just I would imagine that. I mean, it's it's you're supposed to be told. It's just informed consent. When you're when you consent to taking a drug, you're supposed to be informed about it. That's just a basic ethical issue. I was going to say like people like to the the whole thing that well, people doctors over diagnose antidepressants or over prescribe them. Yep. But then if we look at the, a lot of the social problems we have, yep. like mental health, health illnesses are not recognized as an actual disease or problem. So I think them. people are, are not being treated. And I think that's I'm just my preference. No, that, I think that's also the case. I yeah. think that also happens. And there's, there's the, the whole idea of a stigma about mental health. Yeah. It's a real, yeah. this is why I, I just want to divorce mental and quote mental and physical health from each other and just stop saying that. Just let's stop using those words rather. Let's just say health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and because your mind is part of your body. Yeah. You know, and also the biggest issue to me is then when you when people talk about mental health, there is this implicit assumption that a lot of people make, which is you're crazy. Yeah, you're crazy. Well, yeah, and you know, if crazy just means sick. Yeah, sure, that's fine. But it's got a stigma attached to it, which is it's a whole different level. Like no one said when I busted my leg, yeah, it's all in your, it's all in your leg. Just yeah. walk it off. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was all in my leg. Well, it's all in your head. Of course, it's all in my head. I know it's all in my head. Where do you think my freaking condition comes from? My head. Yeah. yeah. But but then because people, uh, well, because they think like they don't believe in like mental health. Issues. Some people don't. Yeah. Then then we end up with things like drug abuse or homelessness yeah. or breakups, marital breakups, abuse. Yeah. Whatever. And I mean, even if, even if there was enough opportunity for everybody in the world, yeah. we would still have people getting sick because people are going to get sick. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a it's one of these topics that can be infuriating uh, because people view it somehow as being different than yeah. something physical. Yeah. Um, and it really, I mean, it, as as a disabled person, it really bugs the shit out of me on a lot of levels. Yeah. Because I, people just should realize that health is health is health, and yeah. just go from there. But we don't, and I don't know why. On the other hand, mm -hmm. I'm going to leave that where it is. I was going to make an yeah. editorial but, comment, decided against it. Because I'm like, a, well, not an advocate, but I just believe that people should recognize mental health as a yeah, health, right? Yeah. But when people don't, like, and you see it, like, again, you see it all around you: families yeah. breaking up, right. people losing their homes for gambling. Yep. Whatever, whatever all these problems are, but yep. but or an alcoholic, and people go antidepressants. Like you want to quit smoking or drinking, just do it. What's wrong with you? And some people can, and that's yeah, great and for them. Yeah, and that's fine. But mm. some people need more, and that's also good. Yeah. I, it doesn't, you know.
And I will say that when I twisted my leg, my knee really badly in high school football, the coach did just say walk it off. So <laughs> get up, Brodzak. Are you okay? No, my leg isn't to, to literally quote, to quote me lying on the ground screaming over and over a single word, and that word starts with F and ends with U-C-K, just screaming it, because the kid hit me during practice. This kid hits me, my leg bent like that. Yeah. You don't hit someone at the knees in practice. Anyway, I'm lying on the ground, you're like, Coach comes over, also my high school math teacher. You okay, Broadback? No, my effing leg isn't supposed to effing bend that way, sir. I threw in sir, which I thought was very respectful. He said, you'll be okay, get up, walk it off. So I'm walking like this. So I stretched my, my MCL, which is something you're not supposed to be even putting any weight on. I played too hard. Went to the doctor the next day, and I said, can I play? And she said, of course not. I said, what if I tape it up? No. I taped it up. My knee hurts literally right now. And something I did in 1980. 1980. Yes, 1980. Because I'm an idiot. And why do, you, why do I play football? To get girls. Did it work? No. <laughs> it's a constant reminder that I'm an idiot. Yeah, it was all in my, it was all in my knee. Yeah, it certainly was. Okay, now if we're going to control, the, the, there's two parts of, say, bipolar disorder. There's the one pole, which is the depression part, and one pole that's the manic part. They're the opposite of depressed. And in fact, somebody going through a manic episode is it's uncomfortable be, to be around as someone who's got parents schizophrenia. Like, it's not fun. At first, it sounds fun. It's the opposite of depression. They'll be fun. Yeah, they'll spend all their money. They'll, they'll, they'll do any, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll have unprotected sex with people who they aren't, aren't, aren't their partner. They're only dangerous when you challenge them and say, you know, dude, you just spent $8,000 in this bar buying everyone drinks all night. You shouldn't do that. That's when they become unpleasant. It's a lot like, uh, if you've ever seen someone who's taken a great deal of cocaine or methamphetamine, it's almost indistinguishable from a manic episode. Oddly enough, what controls this is an extremely cheap drug. Lithium chloride tablets. <laughs> it's, and it's cheap. The beauty of it is it's cheap. You know what else, you know what's bad about it though? The therapeutic index of lithium is somewhere around three. So, Three times the amount that would control your mania will kill you. So when you first go on lithium, you tend to be going on very low doses at first, and you tend to be going in for blood work every couple of days to make sure everything's okay. And the biggest thing that, the biggest, one of the biggest reasons that people have overdoses on lithium is that we have this idea that if you miss a pill, you take two. And in fact, most antidepressants work that way. It says if you've missed a pill, just take two. No, not with that. I had a student back in Newfoundland. Uh, it was an intro psych. It would have been about 22 years ago. And I was talking about drugs in the class. 
in intro psych, and the student comes up afterwards and he says, you know a lot about drugs? I said, yeah, I teach the psychopharmacology class. He said, okay, cool. We know about lithium. I said, we don't know how it works, and it can be really dangerous, but it works. He said, well, I just started on it. And it's real. I said, is it helping? He said, it's great. I said, I'm so happy for you. That's great. He said, but I don't feel really well. And it was darker than this in here. It was pretty dark. And I turned the lights on. And I said, dude, you're green. And he literally was green. Like he had a green tinge in his face. I said, did you do something like forget a pill and then take two? He said, that's exactly what I did. I said, you didn't read on the side of the bottle that says, don't do that? Because I guarantee you it says that on the side of the bottle. So I didn't really read it very closely. I said, okay, we're going to get you to a hospital. <laughs> so actually, I took him down, and we, uh, this is how long ago it was, we actually used a pay phone. So it was 22 years ago. And we called the guy's father, and he took him to the hospital, and he was fine, he got an A. And he ended up getting a degree in psychology, and did fine. But it's a scary thing to take. It works, and it's apparently incredibly unpleasant, because it may, it'll make you sick. You know how we make rats sick? We give them lithium chloride. Like the, lithium poisoning is a thing you do to make to, to artificially give nausea to an animal if you're studying something. Be very careful. But it works, and it's cheap. I have a question. Please. Why is it uh, lethal? Like why? Uh, I don't actually know the mechanism, so I couldn't answer that. Uh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. But it'll kill you. Yeah. It'll kill you uh -huh. dead. Yeah. Oh yeah. Don't mess with lithium. But it works. There's a lot of drugs, you know. It's a little more dangerous than alcohol, which is wild to think. Because I can, without a prescription, go to a store that's full of all kinds of versions of alcohol. Okay, let's talk about opiates. So there's different receptors for opiates. Uh, these opiates were the first drugs, first drug class where we discovered the receptor. Yes. To answer that question. Oh, yeah, you looked it up? Very good. Yes, lithium toxicity uh, can be serious and potentially fatal uh, due to significant neurological issues or kidney failure that can occur. Seizures can be fatal. So it, shut, it, shuts, your, it shuts your kidneys down. You kind of need those. Yeah, your kidneys are important. I have a friend who only has the one kidney, it's not even his. But I've also seen the part where it was before his transplant and he was not fine. And if, if it's anything like that, ooh. So I know three people now that I can think of offhand that I have a way to do. Oh. The first ones we discovered were opioids. Everybody figured that that's how psychoactive drugs work, that there were receptors for individual drugs. Uh, the first ones that were discovered, as I said, were opioid receptors. There's three or four types, excuse me. Why'd you say or? Because there's gonna be a receptor I'm gonna talk about in a sec that isn't only an opiate receptor. So this is throughout the limbic system, the mu receptor. The mu receptor is really just average. <laughs> um, mu is the symbol for the population for the average. Nothing, little statistics joke. There aren't very many statistics jokes. These two unbiased estimators walk into a bar and one says to the other one, when you think about being in a, in a committed relationship, the first advice estimator says, it's great as long as you don't mind losing a degree of freedom. Thank you. As I said, there aren't really any statistics jokes. 
Statistics is a field for people who thought accounting was just a little too edgy. my lines, but I'm delivering them as if they are. Um, so the neuroceptor is throughout the limbic system, especially the hippocampus and amygdala. The, the thalamus, the locus coriolis. Uh, okay. Most of what I call the interesting effects here, in other words, the bit of a high, but also the weird perceptual effects you get on opiates. So the feeling of being outside your body. Thalamus is sensory switchboard, right? So if there's receptors here, you're gonna now be feeling things that aren't there. Touches, right? And, 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 and uh, you might see things, hear things that just aren't there. Locus coriolis is important for um, vision for action, so reaching out and grabbing things, stuff like that. So when I say interesting effects, I mean the weird kind of, ooh, this is fun effects. <coughs> this is also in the limbic system, doesn't overlap with the mu one, so it's somewhat different. It's also in the cortex. Hypothalamus, um, when people take opiates, they have trouble uh, thermoregulating. They can't, they can't keep, their body can't keep its temperature properly. Literally right in one of the important brain centers that gives you, makes you feel good. Your rewards is good. The medulla, sleep, sleep away from us. Oh, and a lot of antipsychotic drugs actually work on the delta receptor as well. Okay. Capillaries. Oh, I should say accumbens. Oh, look, the nucleus accumbens again. And the ventral tegmental area. Oh, now we got two parts of the, we only need medial forebrain bundle, which, spoiler, that's not coming. But two of the three main areas of the reward system are being activated by opiates. Hypothalamus again, thalamus again. Then there's the sigma receptor, which is all over the place. Uh, and it's not just an opiate receptor, uh, it also is for other things. Let's see what it is. So, the paraaqueductal gray is an area that's full of opiate receptors, and when you're in pain, they are stimulated. So what I'm doing now is I'm summarizing this, okay? Whoops, did I just lose my connection? No. The amygdala, so people have heightened emotions, and your respiratory cough and vomit center. So one of the things that, uh, it slows down breathing. Uh, when you first take these drugs, it makes you less likely to throw up, and then, so usually withdrawal is going to be the opposite, so you puke when you, and you don't cough. There are, in fact, uh, cough medicines with codeine in them. You don't you have to prescribe you, but they're, they're cough medicines with codeine. In about 19, oh, I guess that'd be about 1999. Yes. My wife had bad cough, because, you know, people get coughs. And it was so bad one night that she couldn't sleep, and I couldn't sleep, nobody could sleep, because she was coughing so much. So she got in the car and she drove to the hospital, because 
it's, you know, it's middle of the night, so you know you're gonna get in. She comes back about three hours later and her cough's gone and she's got this bottle of cough medicine. And it's like, oh, I'm so, and she slept and everything was great and we were all very happy. Next morning I look at it, it's like, oh, it's codeine cough medicine. They gave you the real thing. Okay, good. So it controls your cough. So one, then I get a bad cough about two years later, because I and remember, I'm an idiot. You gotta keep in mind that I'm an idiot in this whole thing. And it was a really bad cough, and I thought, well, I'll just, we still have that stuff. And it wasn't one that said, keep taking it. It just said, keep taking it until the symptoms go away. So I took some. Because I'm an idiot. Remember, you have to factor in that I'm an idiot in this whole story. So I look at the side, and it says, take two teaspoons. Now, I misread it, and I took two tablespoons. Because, oh. again, again, idiot. Also blind. Let's, little, little sympathy, I'm blind. Okay. And my kid's autistic. That has nothing to do with this, but I thought I'd throw that in there. I love doing that. It's funny, I used to do it all the time when people would say, when are we getting our tests back? And if it was a class like this, where people who hadn't talked before, I'd say, don't rush me, I'm blind and my son's autistic. And they'd all look at me, like, it has nothing to do with anything. I'm just kidding around. Um, so then I took, now that would be enough to be dangerous. So that's good. But it was enough that I had a hell of an evening. I just lied there, no, not coughing. I just lied in bed like this. Oh, it's interesting that the ceiling moves. That's, that can't be good. Why would it do that? Oh, I took an opiate. I wonder. No, I read the instructions. It can't be that. Of course, the next day I read them in the morning. Oh, I'm stupid. Anyway, shouldn't have done it, but I didn't cough. Thank you, right, yeah, exactly. I didn't cough, so I was fine. I am a doctor. My friend Steve was a, who I do a podcast with, and he's got a, he's an English literature professor, and he always says, trust me, I'm a doctor. It's true. They stole our title. Glorified undergraduate degree. Um, yeah, the reward system. <laughs> Basically, it is in the reward system. There's got to be a reason why people take, go to a bad part of town, buy something, and take it and use it, take a needle and put it in their arm. And it feels good. It feels really, really good. I watched somebody, as I said the other day, I watched somebody do it, and they described it as their whole body had an orgasm for 45 minutes, which sounds really fun and like we should all go get some. Except there's a downside. All right, so that's opiates. Again, as I said, if you take Neurofarm, you'll have a whole week on each of these. So then we can talk about stimulants. Let's go to the opposite side. Okay, that's pretty funny. I like that they use the Pepsi slogan for. Uh, yeah, for Coke. I guess that's messing around. I'm glad that you, the fact that you got the graph and got the, the, the reference I'm making is uh, Coca Cola, Coca Cola, the Coca means Coca leaves. Eh? You know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. It used to have cocaine in it and hasn't had cocaine in it since well before any of us were born. Isn't it 65? No, it's more like 1950. Uh, there was no cocaine in, in cola in 1965, I guarantee you that. There may have been cola, cocaine in people's cola because they thought it was a drink, but. Um, So, you know, it is a company, though, built on making money from cocaine. It wasn't a cartel. 
and I'm not going to hold Coca-Cola, you know, in some negative light because of that. Because frankly, uh, it was a pack of medicine. You know, you know what that is. Uh, sort of people used to it in like the 1800s, especially in the states, but all over. They'd travel around and they'd sell medicine, and it wasn't really medicine. It was usually something full of alcohol and a bunch of drugs that made you feel funny, and you bought it. Snake right? oil. Snake oil. It's literally, with a yeah, the snake oil salesman comes from. Right? So it was actually available only in uh, drugstores. So that's where the idea of the soda fountain at the drugstore comes from, which you see in old movies, things like that. In fact, there is a Coke syrup, right? And you can still get uh, tooth drops for cocaine for, for your you got a toothache because cocaine anything ending in ane tends to be a local anesthetic. So cocaine actually is a local anesthetic. A hell of a local anesthetic. I'm not going to ask if anybody here has ever snorted cocaine, because I don't want to know. You don't want to be admitting that. This is being recorded. Um, but there's a great scene in the movie Blow, if you've ever seen That's a really good movie. And one of the characters snorts some cocaine and says, I can't feel my face, because it's so powerful. That's how a lot of people describe it usually. Like, they'll say, like, especially if they, if they take it on like one side, for example, then like, that half of their face yeah. kind of go numb. They can't feel their numb. teeth. Yeah. So that explains it. You take. Oh yeah, but it actually works really well, and it still exists. This, this is something that's over the counter for children, which I think is hilarious. But a friend of mine, six seven years ago, was all freaked out. It's like I, the, the dentist gave me cocaine. It's like yeah, for a toothache. You just probably just had. My wife literally is having two teeth extracted today. Who knows? Maybe she'll be full of cocaine by the time she gets home. And of course, the former mayor of Toronto had a cocaine problem. But anyway, so cocaine and other stimulants. So what a lot of stimulants do is they cause the catecholamines and serotonin, that's norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin to leak out of, without any stimulation out of neurons. And they also cause the amount released on stimulation to be higher than it normally would be. You can see how this would be very, you know, be a stimulant. So this is what ecstasy actually does with serotonin. It just causes an increase in the amount of serotonin released. Ecstasy is a weird drug because it's both a stimulant and a hallucinogen. So you can talk about it either place. I'm just going to I'm just talk about it here. Um, cocaine blocks reuptake of dopamine. That's all it does. But you can imagine that's a pretty powerful thing when your whole reward system runs on dopamine. So now there's more dopamine available, so it feels good. I've seen a lot of people take cocaine. Uh, my best, the best description I've seen of, uh, was, again, from a TV show where uh, in Mad Men, uh, let's see, season seven, episode 14, the finale, person to person, where Joan takes cocaine for the first time because, of course, it's 1970 at this point, and she says, ooh, I feel like someone just gave me some really good news. be covering that next week on my Mad Men podcast, actually. And then in the peripheral nervous system, you get the release of epinephrine, epinephrine with students. It's going to be a performance-enhancing drug, an increasing amount of epinephrine released.
It's pretty straightforward drugs. The withdrawal symptoms aren't nearly as nasty of, of, of stimulants as they are for depressed. But caffeine. We don't really know how, ca how caffeine works. Got a pretty good idea. It's probably blocking adenosine. And it's a neuromodulator that inhibits firing. So if you block the inhibitor, it's a disinhibitor. So sometimes you'll hear people say, caffeine doesn't make you, make you wide awake, it makes you not tired, which I've always wondered what the, the difference is there. But actually, technically, they're right. <laughs> like, it's, it's, in, it's disinhibiting. The high doses will actually block benzodiazepine receptors. So if you took too much Valium and you go to the hospital, um, in an emergency situation, you'd be, you may be given a, literally a shot of caffeine. Caffeine's relatively safe, I wouldn't worry. It's the most used psychoactive drug in the world. Like, by a long shot, too, because there's whole cultures that don't have drink alcohol, the whole Muslim world. But coffee's a really big thing. It's pretty safe, I wouldn't worry. You can, the amount of, co amount of coffee you have to drink, for example, to overdose is about 80 cups at once. You can have bad effects of caffeine. If you ever drank like a lot of coffee very quickly, like you're studying one night, or Red Bull, or any of these kind of things, next thing you know, you're, you're kind of feeling paranoid, you get racing thoughts, and you're shaking. Yeah, that's too much caffeine. But it goes away. It's not like the world's going to stay like this. One of the nice things about knowing stuff about how these drugs work and knowing their effects is that when you have, you take, say, too much of something, you can always go, okay, no, it'll go away, I know it'll go away. Even though you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're still high. But anyway. No nicotine. Now, this isn't safe because the delivery system will kill you. Um, and nicotine generally isn't safe to begin with, but most of the bad things are because of the sucking on a burning thing. The nicotine is great for you, but... It increases your heart rate, things like that, uh, without, but it also dilates blood vessels, so it just makes it increase, increases your blood pressure. I'm sorry, constricts blood, uh, blood vessels. There are nicotine receptors in the cortex, the basal ganglia. Oh, look. <laughs> Why do you think people smoke cigarettes? Because, to quote my father, because they taste good. And we need to they have taste good. Is that they feel good. It feels good to smoke you're cool, you're grown up, you're rebellious. No, no, I'm kidding, right? So, it feels good to smoke. So people do it. Like, think about this. This is a, a drug that the first time you take it, it's extremely unpleasant. The first time you have a whole off a cigarette, you cough for like 45 seconds. And then you know what you do? Oh yeah, these are great. Because you feel this really intense, weird high that you've never felt before. Which, by the way, once you start to become a smoker, you never get that back. <laughs> so don't start. Damn it, kids, don't smoke. So the reward system. I mean, there's a reason people smoke. <laughs> it's because it feels good. 
what are the effects here? Uh, this peripheral nervous system effects. So uh, people have tremors. You can often tell us a smoker who's having to hold their hand up. They'll shake a little bit. Nervous, I don't. I used to because I used to smoke. However, I don't. You get inhibition, which seems weird. It's a, isn't it a stimulant? But you actually get inhibition of inhibition, so you get disinhibition. And blood vessels constrict. So again, your heart rate increases and your blood vessels constrict. That's, that's hard on your heart. Right? And there are central nervous system effects, of course, as well. Not just the peripheral nervous system. So it's the reward system. You get a release of norepinephrine, epinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin in the reward system. Um, so we classify nicotine, some people classify nicotine as a stimulant. Most people put nicotine in its own place, its own classification, because there's something weird that happens with smokers. They smoke to calm down, yet it's a stimulant. You would never hear someone say, I'm really edgy right now. I think a couple of lines of cocaine would probably take the edge off. No one ever says, you know what I really need? I'm just so worked up. I think really strong coffee would help. No, people would want to relax. They maybe would want a glass of wine or beer or something, or maybe just whatever. But the weird thing is smokers, feel calm after they have a cigarette. And I can, I can guarantee you, by the way, this is correct. I've been someone who smoked. Whenever you see somebody going, oh God, I can use a cigarette, they're, they're nervous, and it calms them down. It's actually got a name, it's called Nesbitt's Paradox. I don't know why it's called Nesbitt's Paradox, I figure some guy named Nesbitt saw this and went, well, oh, that's easy, I'm gonna name that after me. So from now on, when it rains, when it's sunny out, you know, a sun shower, that's Broadbeck's paradox. <laughs> just call it that from now on. Because you shouldn't be able to just name something after something we all know about. Oh, this is a table? No, it's a Broadbeckian whole thing holder. Anyway. So it's probably all this stuff that is part of this. Is it the physical act of smoking? In other words, it's distracting people from how, what they're nervous about. Yeah, it's probably part of it. Part of it. Because smoking is a ritual, right? Like taking some drugs, there's very little ritual because it's very quick. Injecting heroin, there's a ritual involved, but it's quick. Doing some cocaine is quick. Drinking alcohol is not. Smoking weed is not. Uh, smoking cigarettes are not. They're, they're long, drawn out things that are ritual to you. So you can get distracted because it might take you three, four minutes of a cigarette. You've got to take it in, you've got to get your lighter, there's the whole process. Maybe it's just getting rid of the withdrawal symptoms. Withdrawal symptoms from, nicot from nicotine dependence are extremely unpleasant. They're low level, like they aren't gonna make you ache. But they're not fun, and there's an easy cure. Have a cigarette. You're pissed off and the world's against you and everything's pissing you off and you're just getting like this and you light up a cigarette like, oh, the world's better now. Everything's fine. It's amazing. It's also the fact that there are nicotine receptors in the GABA system. And GABA is a 
an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So that actually is a paradox. Way to go, Nesbitt. I mean, indeed, in a system that slows you down, there are receptors for a signal. Okay. Oh, let's talk about hallucinogenics. So, LSD and psilocybin, magic mushrooms, are very similar. They have a half-life of maybe 110 minutes. Depends on the person. So somewhere between 45 and an hour and a half. And they're basically just like taking serotonin. So Timothy Leary, back in the 60s, uh, was a professor, a psychology professor at Harvard, who gave out LSD to faculty and students. That will get you fired. It doesn't matter if you're tenured. I'm a tenured full professor. Here's some acid. No, that won't fly. What about my academic freedom? That's not an academic freedom issue. That's dosing your students. By the way, it was mostly, he, when people said they didn't want to do it, he didn't make them. Uh, it was mostly other faculty that he gave it to. So the idea that he was handing it out to students without them knowing is not true. And he kind of got railroaded, but also he was kind of a complicated person to me. <laughs> Uh, LSD was legal until about 1967. Yeah. So it was a completely legal thing. It was very popular among academics. Uh, wasn't there, I forget which war it was, and I forget what country it was, but they were giving their soldiers drugs so that they felt always good. You mean you mean the you mean the German army in World War II giving their soldiers pervitin, which is a which is methamphetamine. Oh, sorry, just just amphetamine, and uh, or as the German soldiers call it, Panzer chocolate. All armies did that. Used to do that, by the way. Uh, not at the level that the Germans did it. Uh, and in fact, I know our, the Canadian Armed Forces a long time ago stopped giving it amphetamine because it just it. The, the downside is way worse than the upside. The upside is you're awake, the downside is you're all, you're, you're, you don't want somebody who's really irritated having a gun. Like, you just don't want that. You want somebody who can do what they're told. You know, being a soldier is actually a job, and um, you, if you can't do your job, you're not very much use. In fact, you're less than useful. Yeah, but, oh yeah, armies did that all the time. And experiments were done with LSD on unsuspecting, unknowing people. Bad past with how we dealt with drugs. A very bad, scary past. Some of that work, by the way, done at McGill University in Montreal. Um, so these things are going to be hallucinations, things like that. Uh, the person who, who uh, discovered LSC, a guy named Hoffman in Switzerland, he uh, look. Now, I don't know how much you all know about how you measure doses of LSD, but you measure it in micrograms. So he took about, what did he take? It's something like five milligrams? <laughs> it's like 300 hits of acid. Uh, he was fine because you can't really overdose on these drugs. You can take so much that you do something really stupid. You can take so much that you climb the top of the building and jump off because you think you can fly. 
you can take so much that you jump on top of a police car and try to rip the, uh, the, the, the siren and, and, and the lights off. That's not me, but that is a good friend of mine. <laughs> and the, the cops love when you do that. They, they, they treat you really well in jail overnight. That was sarcasm. But you can't really take so much that it'll kill you, like with heroin or with, with, with alcohol. You can just take so much. Oh, morning glory seeds actually do this too. Mostly what these things do is give you um, weird perceptions. And this, these are not popular among non-humans. It's hard to get a rhesus monkey to want to open up the doors of perception, man. It's not a thing. You know? It's just unpleasant. This has always been my thing about these drugs. I won't touch these things because I don't think it would be fun. Uh, mushrooms twice? Yeah. Yeah. I was high. I was loud. I spoke louder than I normally do, which is loud to begin with. There's also harmony, which you don't see anymore. That's a 60s thing. Uh, one of my favorites is the idea of licking toads in Australia. Uh, this compound which I've never ever heard anybody say out loud, but I think it's pronounced Bufotenin, is on uh, these toads in Australia. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a defense mechanism. If an animal tries to eat it, it, gets, it has a very unpleasant experience. So they learn not to eat, you know, the blue toads. Okay. And then people said, oh, I bet people could then take these toads and lick them. They get hot, wouldn't you? People in Australia aren't doing this. It's the most urbanized country in the world. 90% of people in Australia live in giant cities of millions of people. All they have to do is go downtown and go, I want to buy some acid. And that's definitely all talk in Australia. And then one guy says, I saw a vehicle big enough to carry all that gasoline. You want to get out of here, you talk to me. Because they all also live in that Max. So there isn't some epidemic of people licking toads in Australia. Because they don't have to. I'm sure there are people who have, but I think it mostly happened after the, the paper was published saying, frogs make their own and we own us. And, and then there's other drugs. Uh, MDMA, that's just uh, ecstasy. SDP, which is something you smoke, it's more of a 70s, <coughs> 60s thing. Uh, mescaline. which is not the same as mescal. Mescal is like tequila. That worm does not have mescaline in it. That's not, just because words sound the same doesn't mean that they're chemically the same thing. It drives me crazy. And the worm has LSD in it. Like how many, on how many levels can you be wrong? First of all, you're talking about mescaline, not, not LSD. Secondly, it doesn't have mescaline in it. You dim with. People half read things. It's amazing. Well, this is this ends up being a lot more um, visual hallucinations. <laughs> yeah, nutmeg. Enough nutmeg uh, can make you hallucinate. It's so much that you probably puke before. Like if you just ate spoonfuls of ground up nutmeg, you'd hallucinate. But likely your stomach would be puking out the nutmeg before you hallucinated. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't become a statistic. 
And that statistic is, look, an idiot. I don't care what drugs you take. Just don't just eat things as spice. It's weird. People will do anything to get high. If all drugs were impossible to find, there would be people, people we don't, we do it at night, we'd all just spin around like this until we got dizzy. And they go, oh boy, that was a good one. Well, isn't, isn't one way to actually just hide something that I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to know. I think that's how. I'm sure that's possibly true. I don't want to know about it. <laughs> it's a prison thing. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to go to prison, so I'll be good. And if I did, I'd be making gin in the in the in the toilet. That is not much better. Yeah. <laughs> Man is another one. Uh, let's see. Deadly nightshade. I personally don't ingest anything with the word deadly in the name. Nightshade, potato plants, tomato plants? Uh, yeah, but those, those aren't hallucinogenic. Uh, okay. But definitely okay. nightshade is. Yeah, but those oh. are nightshades. That's one of the reasons that people, when they were first brought over to the New World, when the Europeans came here and stole stuff, um, <laughs> just what happened. Uh, people, they came back with tomatoes and potatoes, and they said, well, these are nightshades. Nightshades are scary. We don't take them. They're, they're for, you know, um, medicine. Yeah. But, but people are all into tobacco. Well, that looks that looks healthy. Lighting that on fire and putting it in my mouth and sucking on it, that seems healthy. But those tomatoes, they'll kill you. That and baths. You don't want to do that. And there's angel dust, which you don't hear about much anymore. That's special cake, ketamine, of course. What you hear a little bit about? There. Yeah, ketamine is one of those things I intend not to go after anything that's given, that's used by vets. That's just sort of a, oh look, there's horse tranquilizer. Ah, maybe the horses can have that. Hey, let's talk about something that's now legal in this country. Oh, these are great. These posters are great because these are propaganda posters. Reefer Madness is a movie you can watch. In fact, I'll put a link uh, to, the, to a YouTube video of it on the, in the blog post for the, on the podcast. It's, it's hysterical for all the wrong reasons. Oh yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and it's completely uh, out of copyright, so you can, you can watch it, you can trade it, you can go on BitTorrent and get it, and nobody's gonna get mad at you, it's wonderful. This guy is great in Reef Madness. And he keeps saying to her, one, my favorite part of the whole movie is when she's playing the piano and he keeps smoking this joint going, play faster, play faster. And I don't want to, I'm going to spoil the ending. I don't care. It's a movie from 1937. It ends with someone smoking a joint and jumping out a window. Because that's, I don't know about you, but when I'm high, I have just enough energy to just jump through a window. No. It's hilarious. It's a propaganda movie made by the U.S. Department of Education. At the beginning, there's a guy who describes it, he, uses, he pronounces it like this, Marijuana! Spelling with an H. Uh, typically, it was called cannabis for the longest time, or hemp, and then they called it marijuana to associate it with people of color, because brown people bad. That's why people try to say cannabis, try to say cannabis now. 
This is even better. This is Weed with the Roots in Hell or Weed from the Devil's Garden. It's got two names. It's another one of these movies. I used to have a t-shirt that had that on it. I used to think, is this a mistake? Best part is this. I know about you, but every night I mainline <laughs> THC. Also, weird orgies, wild parties, and unleashed passions. Sounds great. That doesn't sound like being stoned to me. I have never had an unleashed passion for anything other than corn chips when I'm hot. Maybe pizza, cereal, frankly anything that I can eat. But I don't sit there going, I'm gonna go do some crimes. Like that doesn't occur to me. But I love the injection, and this is just great. Also, like she's got some sort of flapper look going on, which I kind of—it's kind of hot. Um, I like the dark circles under her eyes. She's so stoned that, that she didn't sleep. I don't know. I don't know what that's even trying to convey. <gasps> Is she a zombie? Like maybe she's a zombie. That just looks like her eyes are closed. I don't know. I don't know if that's what they're going for them or not. Anyway, for the longest time, that was illegal. So, how were cannabinoid receptors discovered? So, a synthetic cannabinoid was given these. This was to mice. Might have been rats. At NIMH, the National Institutes of Mental Health, in the first of Maryland, in the U.S. And they were trying to see where this cannabinoid would bind in the brain. This was in the mid-80s. Uh, in the early 80s, the opiate receptors were discovered. And that's when people said, OK, now that we found the opiate receptors, we know that there are receptors for drugs. I bet there are cannabinoid receptors. So that's fine. And then the next lab over, their group was working on a, was trying to figure out a, in a gene they discovered to code it for a given kind of receptor. And the two groups looked at their sort of brain maps and the math matched. I, I just, I'm just, I love this story because it just shows how cool science is. It's all often very serendipitous. You know, one group doing one thing, one group doing another, and the two groups look and go, oh, we don't meet. I love that story. I mean, it makes it, the way I'm telling it, makes it sound like they didn't even ever talk, and of course that's not the case, but, but let's pretend. Um, so where are the receptors for THC? The cortex? Well, yeah, it changes higher order cognition. Most of us here, you know, I shouldn't say most of us, many of us here, quite possibly, have ingested THC. Hippocampus, yeah, there's memory issues. There's no doubt about that. Cerebellum, fine movement and balance, uh-huh. Very often when you've taken some and then you're, you're lying down and you think it's not hitting me, it's not hitting me, it's not hitting me, you get up and go, oh no, it certainly has. There it is. Welcome back, old friend. And by old friend, I mean 20 odd hours ago. Basal ganglia, it's important in um, a lot of perceptual and sensation sort of systems. Spinal cord, oh, you know, it's a, uh, one of the things that these drugs do, that this drug does, is it can act as a painkiller. So it, it transmitting pain messages gets slowed down. 
the brainstem. Shouldn't surprise you again, uh, the brainstem is where you're again transferring information from the body up to the brain and out from the brain to the body, and you know how those things get the uncoordinated sort of when they're home. Hypothalamus. There's a reason you get hungry and you get thirsty. Because your hypothalamus is being stimulated. It's like, no, really, you're hungry. And you're sitting there going, my stomach isn't, feel, I feel like I need to eat. But I just ate half a chicken. That may have happened to me at some point in my life. A couple of friends of mine. The summer of 1985, I don't really remember. Um, and that's not entirely true. It's not entirely false either, but sitting there at um, over to a friend's house, and this, this, this sounds like it's from a movie, and I guarantee you this happened. Walking to my friend's house, and he says, there's literally, it's like two o'clock in the morning, there's literally a chicken sitting in. And he said, I'm just gonna go pee. Don't anybody eat the chicken. My mom cooked that to make sandwiches for the week. And he went off to take a piss, and my friend Donnie and I, probably shouldn't use his name, oh well. <laughs> He's since retired from his job, so I don't think anybody can get him now. He looked at me and I looked at him, we used to eat the chicken. <laughs> and my, my other friend comes back, who's now a school principal in Vancouver, and he looks at us and he said, and the chicken is just, just a pile of bones left. <laughs> 90 seconds, it's, you know, it's not a big, it's not a great big roasting chicken, it's one of those little fryer guys, you know? So we ate it. And he comes back and we've, we've got a two liter bottle of orange crush, that we both, you know, we drank half of it, and our faces are covered in chicken fat, because we just went, ah! And he said, did you guys eat the chicken? Obviously, see, you don't ask the question, you'd be quite, obviously, yes. And we went, no, which of course is a lie. We ended up, we found another chicken, we defrosted it, and we roasted it. And his parents were home, they totally knew what we were doing, we were like 20. But it was a fun story. It's a fun story. And it literally did happen. And with the same couple of guys, I went to a movie, because that's what we used to do, is go to movies. High. And, um... Did you watch Back to the Future? While no, we were watching The Goonies. Oh, okay. And our mouths got so dry from being thirsty. And my friend, that same one, Donnie, said, Start doing this, you know. And then he was paranoid that everyone in the theater could hear them doing that noise. It's like, everybody here can hear me. So we then, from then on, that's called among my group of friends since 1985. That is called, not called the dries or being thirsty, it is called Goonie Mets. On that note, we'll pack it in for today. I didn't realize it was that late. I enjoy telling these stories of being stoned when I was in my 20s. And we'll talk again next time. Thanks, everybody.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want, but if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and that was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because... Um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.